Moving right along, uh, the next panel is the literature panel, and uh, I would like to introduce uh, Linda Woodbridge, who is the uh, Vice Chair in the Humanities and Professor of English, who will be moderating the panel. And I believe Linda will introduce the panelists herself. Thank you, Mar. We are the literature panel. And out of many national European literatures in this period, we represent only four. Um, Christine Clark Evans represents French literature. Sherry Rauch represents Italian literature. Bob Blue represents Spanish literature. And I represent English literature. We would each like to speak to you for a couple of minutes, and then we will interact with each other. Christine, will you begin, please? Yes. Um, the opportunity to talk about this is really, oh, thank you. The opportunity to talk about this is really very welcome, and we thank everyone. And what the uh, um, previous two panels have done is very important for us. Um, for French literature, there are three major changes in history and in culture that affect literature. The first one is print culture expands rapidly. Books become a commodity. They become form of propaganda and they become artistic creations. This is decisive in changing the entire print culture because what you will find is that there become centers all over France, but particularly Paris can begin to talk about itself as a, the city of the book, Lyon, which produces everything from rope to precious jewels, becomes a producer of books. So that you have this expansion of print culture, new writers, new authors from different social groupings. Um, texts are written with the idea in mind to create propaganda, to fight out in words the Protestant cause and its effort at reform. The second point is that politics and economics push the national territory of France to become this hexagon that we know so early on at this turn of the century. From the Edict of Nantes of Henry IV that makes France up to this day very much a Catholic country still in contention, that keeps the trend of resistance in art, in politics, in literature still present. So many of the same places that are, that used to be centers for Protestant Reformation are now centers for resistance to the new policies coming from Paris. And likewise, in the institutions, you have this constant war intermittent with civil life, imposed civil life, that will show that instead of uh, developing its colonial interests as rapidly as other countries, it fought for the riches in Europe from Europe and extended its borders on the east and in the south, which created at the same time 
a contradiction between the center and the periphery, the resistance, the feudal nobles who wanted to keep their privilege and did not want to submit to taxation, the institutions of a central uh, Bourbon uh, dynasty. And thirdly, that there's a res literaria, that there's a fine letters of French moving away from Latin for the creative works. And this res literaria assumes that there are several places, several social places that writing comes from. The court with their political dominance, the different palais or secular centers of learning that were dedicated in the Renaissance tradition, and then the salon, where you still had this Baroque poetry, the passion for the wars fought, the passion for the throne, and eventually you will find this same kind of passion in um, the theater, where you have not only poetry and prose and new authors, and so you have so many new authors that you even have women uh, <laughs> included. Um, and I'm quoting from Marie de Gournay of The Equality of Men and Women. If then ladies achieve degrees of excellence less often than men, it is just a wonder that their lack of a good education, even with a flood of bad writing and utterance, does not do worse and keep them from achieving at all. So you see all of the new is coming in in this per period. Thank you. Sherry. In Italy, um, the 17th century as a whole was famously termed a, a century of prolific production but without literary masterpieces. And while this is an exaggeration to some extent, there were a number of masterpieces and I know two of them on your handout, um, Marino's Adonis and Tassoni's uh, the Rape of the Bucket, which would be incredibly influential on subsequent English writers in particular. Um, compared with the Renaissance and Italy's indisputed uh, status for literary masterpieces in the 1300s, the 1400s, and the 1500s, uh, the early part of the 16th century was a period of, we could say, relatively less interesting literature. Um, but where I would say Italy is incredibly important in this period in investigation is really the way that literary scholars begin to assess and talk about literature in new ways. And I'll give three examples of how it touches on this. The first is literary polemics, uh, the debates that are held, particularly the one of Ariosto versus Tasso, who is the better epic poet. While there are lots of ramifications concerning this debate, it really boils down to uh, do we want to respect generic boundaries, be great within generic boundaries, and respect tradition? Those were the partisans of Ariosto, for instance. Or do we want to move beyond the boundaries of genre, um, test new innovations, and so forth? These were the partisans more of Tasso. Literary academies. Um, Already, uh, literary academies existed in Italy, but during this period of 1600 to 1625, some of the most influential and important academies were founded, including the Lincei, the Infuriati, the Faticosi, the Oziosi. Um, participants and members of these academies would chart the course of literary development and publication for hundreds of years afterwards, well into the 1800s, you have the influence of these academies um, on literary development in Italy. 
We also have, uh, and the third point would be the publication of the first edition of the first official uh, Dictionary of Italian Language. Now, this codified the Italian language for the first time and of course gave literary scholars another tool to assess uh, the beauty of literature, uh, the way it conforms or doesn't conform to certain expressive models and so forth. So just to summarize, in Italy the sort of shift from mannerism to the Baroque is really very important for the way it makes more sophisticated the sort of tools for uh, literary scholars to talk metacritically about uh, the scholarship of literature. Thank you. Bob? Um, mine's going to be sort of a summary of Spanish literature in three minutes and 20 seconds. And prose fiction, I'm going by genre. In prose fiction, the big event in this period was the publication of Don Quixote, Volume 1 in 1605, Volume 2 in 1615. It was an immediate bestseller. It was reprinted six times in 1605 and ten more by the time the second volume comes out. The picaresque novel, which had begun in the prior century, continues in this period, becomes much more pessimistic and moralizing. There is a very strong line of historical, political, and moral prose in this period as well. In poetry, there are two major trends which produce a great polemic. Luis de Gongora writes his fable of Polyphemus and Galatea in 1612 and his Solitudes in 1613, and they were poetic bombshells. This is parallel to what Sherry was talking about in, in Italy as well. <coughs> uh, written in a complex, highly Latinized Spanish filled with demanding syntactical arrangements, challenging images, metaphors, and mythological references. His supporters found his poetry aesthetically pleasing and were proud of the fact that it was elitist poetry. His detractors, chief among them Francisco de Quevedo, despised this kind of poetry. He and his followers wrote a witty metaphysical poetry employing clever conceits and ingenious wordplay to express insights about love, life, death, and the human condition. For them, form and content were ultimately bound, and they found Gongora's poetry to be vacuous, empty of moral content. The big genre in this period, nonetheless, is theater. Uh, Comedia, a three-act play, was in full flower. In general, in the teens during this period, many plays were written and set in an idealized rural countryside. But as you move into the 20s, plays were set much more in the urban environment of Madrid and reflect thereby the demographic shift from country to city or country to court. But this move to the city was not without consequence. We see characters struggle to attain their goals, suffering from a growing sense of alienation and loss of identity in the big anonymous city. As Madrid grows in power and wealth, we witness the beginning of court theater these were spectacular special effect plays that depend on the use of stage machine and theatrical innovation. And these plays were made possible in, in part by the arrival of Italian stage designers and engineers in Madrid. The other major subcategory in theater is the Auto Sacramental, a one-act allegorical play dealing with the aspects of the Eucharist and performed on movable floats in various parts of the city during the Corpus Christi celebrations. Just to give you an idea of the number of plays written in this period, Lope de Vega, who basically invents the Spanish Comedia, uh, 
1604, he's 42 years old. He sits down to make up a list of the plays that he has written up to this point in his life, and he comes up with 448. <laughs> he lives to be 73 and writes prolifically to his death. A reasonable estimate of his production is about 800 full-length plays, and he wrote in all other genres as well. Uh, Tirso de Molina, who comes up with the first Don Juan play, wrote about 400 works. Calderón de la Barca, about 180. So if you look at the production in this period from about 1580 to 1700, a reasonable estimate is 10,000 full-length three-act plays and at least 1,000 one-act altos sacramentales. Thank you. No, I think of Shakespeare with his puny 37 plays on <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, we think of London as a world city, and we all know about Shakespeare and his contemporaries. But I'd like you to imagine back about a century before this period we're looking at today, when the Renaissance was in full swing in Southern Europe. England was still a remote northern hinterland. And English literature was not a player at all in the world cultural stage. By the late 16th century and early 17th century, um, England was coming into its own. English literature uh, reached its highest flowering in the drama, um, in the <coughs> notice that you have on the back side of your, your handout, you have lists of all of the, the great English writers of this period. The last two decades of the 16th century and the first um, decade and a half of the 17th century are really the high renaissance in England, the, the, the golden age. What made the difference over this century? Uh, we all seem to be coming up with three things, so I've isolated three important uh, contributing factors to this uh, wonderful change. The first is the steady expansion of print culture. The first important English printer, William Caxton, in the early 16th century, made a crucial and remarkable decision that he would publish books only in the English language and leave classical texts to be published by continental printers. He chose to publish uh, some of the great classics then of, of English literature as it was then and gave a great boost to English literature and to the English language. This continued um, throughout the century, um, creating a, a great market of printed books. This um, existed alongside a rich manuscript culture. The second important contributing factor is that changes in the educational system led to the expansion of literacy. And that provided a readership for all of those printed texts and manuscripts. And the third important contributing factor, I would say, is the growth of London into a real city. Uh, a century earlier, London had been a thriving town, but just a town. It was surrounded by a number of outlying villages, but they were all um, separated by monastic agricultural lands. During the English Reformation, when Henry VIII seized all church property, 
including these enormous agricultural holdings. And over the next couple of decades, these holdings got sold off basically for development, and all the little villages grew towards London, and London grew towards the villages. So over the period of a century, suddenly London coalesced into a big city, um, increased by a huge flood of population in from the outlying provinces because of, uh, of economic hard times. This had many effects. Uh, it meant that England could be a player on the world stage in trade to a greater degree than it had been. But for literature, it meant that there was a critical mass of population to support the one genre that really needs a big population, and that is the drama. We, when we were talking together earlier, we, we were sort of concluding, and I don't know if you've had second thoughts, that there's quite a, a differential, a, a time lag in these four national literatures. That is, uh, the Renaissance really starts literarily in Italy and France and peaked early there and came on so that by this period, the early 17th century, Spain and England are just hitting their stride and uh, France and Italy are sort of resting on their laurels. Have you mm -hmm. had any second thoughts about that? It's not so much that it rose early and peaked early in my view. I think that one of the things that uh, affects it is that the political turmoil and conflict, in particular the religious conflict, creates readers. Calvinism insists that the person discover their duty, that they read the Bible in their own language, and so it just pushes the readership to increase in number, to both raise itself in social class and status, and lowers itself in social class and status from where you get these new writers. And because of that, it gains momentum that is really, really forced through that middle of the uh, uh, 16th century to the point where all of the society from top to bottom is implicated in the controversies, in the conflict, and many more people who would otherwise very, only very later be considered writers enter, but here they enter early, including women who exchange texts, women who form salons. And it makes a big difference having these kinds of internal and external conflicts that basically drive the society, including its art. Um, yeah, you don't have the same sort of caliber of lar big names during uh, in Italian literature that you do here, but you do have a lot of innovation. Um, in Italy, you see them pushing the boundaries a lot, particularly in hybrid literatures. And in other areas, certainly there's a lot of development in terms of music and theater, combining musical theater, having commedia dell'arte, but also the eventually the birth of opera, which I'm sure we'll hear about in, in the fifth panel today. You have, you have different kinds of innovation than more the traditional categories that we used to see. So there is continual development. It's just of a different sort. Yeah, Spain is very grateful to Italy for providing it with lots of, uh, of stories that our dramatists take and uh, rework and, and then dub their own. 
the whole notion of uh, intellectual property rights simply didn't exist uh, <laughs> in this period. Um, interestingly enough, Madrid goes through some of the same things that happen in London. Uh, Philip II arbitrarily picks, or relatively arbitrarily picks Madrid in 1565 to make it the capital of, of Spain. And it grows from a village of about 10,000 to about 150,000 by uh, 1620. And as you say, it hits that critical mass and as this huge mm, immigration moves towards Madrid, then the money and the power and the wealth is there to produce particularly theater. I wonder if you could say more about some of these new genres? No, the hybrid genres were really big in this period in Italy. In fact, the two works that I mentioned in the handout, Marino's epic poem, The Adonis, in it he wanted to create a musical anti-narrative epic poem. So already there you, you see how he's trying to push the boundaries of what we think of in terms of epic poetry. Um, Tassoni's satirical um, poem, The Rape of the Bucket, he termed himself heroic comic, uh, a sort of genre that doesn't exist. It's a hybrid uh, genre. But you see this kind of development quite a bit in Italian literature. In French literature, what you find is both the sweep of the Renaissance tradition, the scope of this poetry that creates an entirely new world and places the author at the center of it, including uh, much litigation over author's rights, which establishes very much this association between the author and that creation and really drives the possibility of having a career as an author as well as you have uh, necessarily the debates over language which really force um, a sort of meta-critique that makes writers as well as readers begin to think very consciously about it and it becomes a very divisive political debate as well where you arrive at with the Jansenists who take a very distinct notion about uh, language and the arbitrary sign and that language represents thought as well as people who like Marie de Gournay who had her own outlook on language such that rather than submit to the imposition of criteria of classic balance and and, 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 and evenness in expression, she insisted that it's the passion, it's the person's psychology. These things are in the language. So you then enter a period of even meta-critique so that you have these, these new genres such as the essay, uh, the mixed genres, um, tragic comedies. Then you have the whole theater where uh, Corneille's Clitant appears totally challenging all Aristotelian concepts of unities and insisting that this is the way to go. So you have a lot of things that, that, that really follow that. In England, too, you have a new concept of authorship. And I, I was interested in your talking about intellectual property rights because this is the period in which you don't have copyright yet, but you're just starting to get the notion that literature is property. 
uh, and the property of an individual author, a, com uh, a commodity view of literature, as you were saying. I wanted to come back to, um, on, the, on the genre question, to Bob, you were talking about the autos sacramentales. Could you tell us a little bit more about those? They, they sound superficially very much like the medieval pageant uh, plays in England, but they were really quite different, weren't they? Yeah, they're basically, um, the best description of those is a one-act sermon, right? uh, a, a, a theatrical <laughs> sermon. It, it focuses on the Eucharist, but they, as they start really getting into writing these plays, they begin to take the plots from all sorts of, uh, of sources, historical plots, uh, mythological plots. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the, of the, uh, of the Alto Sacramentales really become very politically oriented. So that one of the, the tricks in this period, which you had to get a lot of your plays by censors, and the, the writers became very good at what they call decir sin decir, is saying it without saying it. And this was a perfect vehicle for exactly those sorts of things. But basically, it's a, it's a play about the mystery of the Eucharist. Is censorship an issue in all of our national literatures? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, um, it goes with the panel that came before ours, too, in terms of literature, uh, of science and religion, too. In Italy, you have lots of literary works being written in a kind of code to Giordano Bruno is burned at the stake in Campo dei Fiori in the year 1600. You also have Galileo writing literary works as well as his scientific treatises, his dialogues and so forth, um, trying to get them by uh, the censors. Tommaso Campanella was writing important works during this period from prison because he didn't manage to get his by a lot of the censors. But yeah, censorship was, was an issue for uh, literary writers as well. Almost everything we read from this period in uh, French literature is condemned. Uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, you have this political polarization between the center and the periphery, the provinces, between the centralized monarchical uh, 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 authority and these other cities that actually produce books. So you have to get it back to Paris to get approval to get it published here. And the notion of what was property was very much um, uh, 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 like we s what we see today in different other places, that is, whoever has the printing press owns the book. So what happens is you have this emergence of clear censorship to control the flow of ideas because during the periods of warfare and reformation, they were exchanged in rapid, rapid speed so that you have an Agrippa d'Aubigné who writes this epic, five book treatment on the tragic indicting the French Catholic kings for treason as well as blasphemy. And it's in this amazing poetry that is graphic and Baroque in its violence and its sorrow. One thing you see in English drama is that when people want to make political comments and get them by the censors, they 
often set their plays in strange and outlandish places like Italy and France and Spain. <laughs> that, that's exactly what happened in Spain is the plays become much more political. They shift them over to Italy where I guess they can get away with just about anything. Yeah, and then we set them in places like the City of the Sun. So. <laughs> I believe our time is just about up. And I thank you on behalf of all four of us. Thank you.